0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Kelly. Bailey's not with us today. Um, it's her birthday though, so uh, by the time this episode comes out, if you'd like to wish Bailey a happy birthday, uh, that would be great. Instead, I have two guests here today, which I'm very excited about. I have Jakob van der Wilk and William romano Q, both hosts of the Gods Will Not Save You podcast. And welcome to both of you. I'm really happy that you could join me. We've been interacting on Twitter and uh, we've uh, really enjoyed uh, some of your commentary and and takes on on the wire, but uh, you have knowledge that goes well beyond that, which is what we'll be talking about today. But to get started, tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Go for it, Willie. Okay. Uh, so I'm William Romano Pugh. Uh, I've known my friend Jakob here for, you know, over 20 years. We went to the same schools together uh, all throughout high school. Um, uh, I am trying to make it in the film industry here in LA. I do like some acting stuff here and there. Um I really love The Wire. I came to know it after falling in love with The Sopranos when I first watched that, like, over 14 years ago or something like that. Um, This was after me kind of, like, being kind of stuck in, like, film nerd brain where I always thought, like, movies were superior to TV. And, like, I kind of had, like, people endlessly badgering me to, like, you know watch The Sopranos and give like prestige TV a try. And from there I discovered The Wire and the rest is history. I've been a big fan ever since.
0: (laughs) That's pretty much me, that badgering person. (laughs) I do that to everyone about The Wire. (laughs) Um, And Jakob, what about you?
2: Um, I just am a huge fan of The Wire. I I watched it for the first time about a decade ago. And Willie's probably the... Most well informed person when it comes to film and nah, TV, he's nah, shaking his head okay. that I know. <laughs> so, we just kind of joked around that we should start a podcast about the wire and re watch it during this, uh, you know, last year and a half. And yeah. we are happy to have made it this far. Yeah. And we're really grateful that you're having us on your show here. So, on your podcast,
0: so you didn't watch it together then, no, right?
2: we we watched it, uh separately and probably you know far too many times that way so we thought (laughs) hey why not let's let's watch it at the same time um and then just yeah start this little project and uh it's been great yeah
1: it's uh, like kind of like a byproduct of the pandemic too of us like being locked down where we kind of wanted to like uh, legitimize our TV watching habits, maybe.
0: <laughs> so huh. maybe. Fair enough. Yes. If you're making an art project out of it, <laughs> like it's not just television there you at go. that point. I mean I feel that way about the wire in general is that it's not just television. Yeah, definitely but, not. Um that's uh that's great. And so you had probably talked about the wire um to each other well before um starting your podcast. Yeah. And so what was it that kind of captivated you both about the show? And William, you said you watched The Sopranos first. Right. Um, so I'm I'm really curious what led you to The Wire after The Sopranos. Did someone recommend it to you or were you kind of doing that HBO <laughs> canon? Uh,
1: a little bit of both. Uh, like, I really love The Sopranos for like the way it kind of, you know drew out these arcs over a long period of time that you couldn't really get uh through a lot of like typical you know two-hour films and like i appreciated a lot of like the psychological insight that like lended itself to some pretty cool surrealistic cinematic stuff and i had just kept hearing and reading like well you know the sopranos might be the greatest show ever that you've heard about but the wire is the greatest show ever that you haven't heard about and it's great for all these different reasons and you know it slowly started get like i feel like it keeps gathering steam even though it's been off the air for 13 years like people are still like kind of like figuring out about it and realizing that it's a hidden gem so to speak so yeah
0: Yeah, whenever somebody tells me that um, The Sopranos is the greatest TV show ever made, or worse, if somebody says that Breaking Bad is the best TV show ever made, um, I always ask them if they've seen The Wire, because usually they haven't. um, And I find that when people end up watching all of The Wire, it generally takes kind of the the first rank um in their list. And so I I think it is essential viewing for for um like you said that kind of prestige TV. Yeah. Um Jacob, did you watch those shows as well like the Sopranos and and the HBO um canon of uh well, I know that uh Breaking Bad was on HBO, but did you watch that one as well?
2: Yeah, I watched um The Wire before any of the the shows that you just mentioned. I, I mean, to be honest, I was kind of the weird friend of the group growing up because I didn't grow up with cable and, uh, you know, those things. So I heard about that definitely, but I, yeah, just came to fall in love with the wire and then from there started building on shows like Oz and the Sopranos, which Willie's uh, brother finally got me to watch. Um, and yeah, then all the other David Simon shows that I could get my hands on, um, and yeah, just from there, you know, Willie and I kind of started uh, talking about you know, working on a project, just uh, analyzing the wire, and now we're here, um, you know, talking about the uh, talking about it in greater context. So,
0: yeah, um, yes, we'll talk about Generation Kill, which. I think the longs up there in that list uh, that we just talked about. Definitely, I actually hadn't seen Generation Kill until last year. And so it was one of the shows that my partner and I decided during quarantine, um, let's watch this. He had already seen it. And I made him watch The Wire, as I do with potential (laughs) suitors, always. (laughs) And so uh, he really liked it. And he said, oh, David Simon, I know that name. Um, Have you seen Generation Kill? And so we ended up watching it together. And it was probably the first show since The Wire that I would even put in the same bracket um, of just absolute quality television. And... William, I'm really glad you made the point about um film versus TV and break um the wire especially because in the past conversations I've had, usually it kind of ends up comparing the wire to other television. and and I think a conversation that should be had more, and I'm glad you brought it up, is the wire versus film and what are the limitations of just a, a two hour film. And so, generation kill is is kind of in the middle there um i guess it's longer than a film uh but it's shorter than a series it's only seven episodes so um just start maybe by telling from your knowledge of the industry like what is the the purpose of that mini series length or or what what does that serve or where do you see it fitting in
1: Um, Well, I kind of like what uh, David Simon has said about this in the past, that, um, you know, given the context of, like, how difficult it was to keep the wire on the air season after season, season, because it was always, like, you know, face the threat of being canceled, that having like a specific um you know limitation to what they can do with a story but still have like that sort of novelistic quality to it that uh you know is very it it happens a lot throughout the wire that uh you know, maybe like the first two episodes of a season are like really slow and it's just kind of like building to like these larger themes and whatnot. But with uh, adapting an incredible book like Generation Kill, it's able to fit so much more detail in there than just a typical two hour movie. And uh, Jakob and I both read this, the book, like in the lead up to like recording this episode. And it's pretty. Uh, remarkable how faithful it is to the book at large and like how it seems like it's almost word for word at some point that they're able to fit all that detail in there.
0: I, I will go ahead and admit that I have not read the book. Um, and so I'll definitely put that on my list. It's, it's kind of interesting that um, from the creators, David Simon, he had homicide um, book prior to um the shows that he created and kind of came out of that experience. And then the Generation Kill book being source material um, for the miniseries. And, I mean, aside from just David Simon, one of the reasons that I wanted to have this conversation about Generation Kill and The Wire was that there's a fair number of crossover of personnel. So David Simon, of course, but then the writers on both shows include... Ed Burns, um, and David Simon, and, um, one of you, I'm not sure which one, but you pointed out that it draws on their personal experiences. Um, so tell me a little bit mo- more about that because I didn't know about Ed Burns' uh, personal experience.
1: He was a, he was a Vietnam veteran. Right? Yeah,
2: I think he was just a infantryman. So, um, something similar to what we witness here in Generation Kill, um, probably not in the POG category, right? Persons other than grunts, if if that's how I'm interpreting it correctly. (laughs) (laughs) So definitely something that I'm sure he, you know, uh, brought a ton of his own experiences uh, from the Vietnam War, which is something I really have wanted to learn more about, uh, but it's been a little bit challenging to find. Uh, Ed Burns, you know, kind of famous for uh, his mantra, less is more. So a man of <laughs> few words at times. So I yeah. want I want that to find that, that gold mine of Ed Burns interviews where he describes his time in Vietnam, but I don't I don't know if it's out there and probably for good reason. So Yeah.
1: And and the fact that he says that teaching in public school was more traumatic to him than fighting in Vietnam, I think says a lot, maybe about his personal experience uh during that time, but I I'm not sure. Like I, I know that it happened that he served. But other than that, I I don't know if we found a lot of like specifics.
0: Um, it's I mean, it's kind of like how David Simon, with his journalism experience, um, was able to translate that and, and both of them with uh, their um, wealth of sort of real life knowledge and, and practical knowledge of these various institutions. That's, I think what makes both of the shows so great right. is they're just um, really steeped in the realism. Um, and of course the crossover cast, uh, we have James Ransone as uh, Ziggy in The Wire and uh, Ray in Generation Kill. There's Benjamin Bush who is Colicchio in The Wire and then Major Ekloth in Generation Kill. And I did a, a little cross-reference and there's many, many more who also appeared in Homicide: Life on the Street, if not necessarily The Wire. So, um, I know that David Simon does this with a lot of his projects. Yeah. Uh, you know, coming back to the same cast, but it is kind of interesting to see the actors that we know from roles in The Wire and then have them in a different uh, in a different capacity. So. All of that uh kind of I think invites a little bit of this comparative analysis. Yeah. Um and then the thematic crossover oh, yeah. was really striking to me. So when you watched Generation Kill or and when you read the book, um what did you notice as being s- similar or um kind of what stood out to you both?
1: Uh, you
2: could start off with the uh Well, I mean I don't wanna take your 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 points here. No, no we're, we're a team. <laughs> uh, just, I mean, it's something that we both collaborated on here, discussing the the, the uh, war on terror and the parallels uh, to the the drug war, and uh, how season three of the Wire is largely an allegory to the war in Iraq. So,
0: yeah, hmm. I, um, I was really interested by that point. Um, one of one of you had said that the media oversells the simplistic narrative of unending wars being wide. That, especially now that I know a little bit more about Ed Burns in Vietnam, um, that was a very um sort of media-spun narrative at the time. It was a, a war that was futile in, in a lot of respects, and uh, that's not very palatable to the average American media consumer, I don't think. It's right. not um, as... As easy to uh, write up or to sell or to understand as something like the Axis versus the Allies of, of World War Two. Right. So, how how did it um, manifest in season three specifically?
1: Um, well, I do like one of I think it's uh, the last episode of season three is called Mission Accomplished. Is that right? And I know that was like the the banner that was behind George W. Bush when he made the speech about, you know, we've got Saddam Hussein or whatever. Uh, You're
0: absolutely right. That's such a great point. I never thought of
1: that. <laughs> Yeah, I was like watching the episodes like over and over again and then going back and watching them with the commentary. It's kind of like my brain is like always in this like <laughs> hyper hyper mode. I don't know how to describe it, but um. It's also kind of like um Slim Charles uh, declaration. Like if it's a lie, then we fight on that lie. Kind of similar to the thing in Generation Kill. Like even after the news comes in that Saddam Hussein has been captured and they've toppled the statue, they're still kind of going on this futile mission and the realization kind of settles in that things are going to be kind of a mess and there's going to be like a power vacuum similar to, you know, what happens in The Wire when like McNulty feels this like deep sense of existential dread that he didn't get to take out, you know, the big bad guy Stringer Bell only to, you know, eventually realize that Marla is going to come in and fill his place and it's kind of like a cyclical thing.
0: Right, there's always someone who will replace the next uh, bad guy. Exactly. Um But what you noticed about, so season three starts with the towers coming down. Right. Ends with mission accomplished. I'm really like blown away by this. Um, theory that you've put forward that is an allegory to the war in Iraq because if we think of the towers coming down, 9/11, um mission accomplished as you said being the the signage that was behind President Bush at the time. Um, that's brilliant. I I think that's a great interpretation of that season. Oh, thanks. Um there are a couple other references to the war or the the um narrative of a, a national war Starting with season one, episode one, right. uh, I believe it's Carver says, can't even call this shit a war. Right. War's end. Um, sort of similar to uh, the sort of ongoing nature of the the war on terror, which I don't even know if we would say that that is over. Right. But in season five, uh, Bunk, I th- think it's maybe the last or, or um, second to last episode, Bunk says, this shit is like a yeah. war, isn't it? So I mean that language does come up over and over again. Um and something else that I just thought of just kind of before we were getting started this evening was the street culture and being in the game, um, whether you're in the the Barksdale crew or or whichever organization, they always say, Oh, he's a soldier, he's a soldier. Um Boat, he's a soldier, Weebay's a soldier, he stood tall. Um, what do you make of that referring to the muscle or, or standing tall for the organization? How they refer to that as being a
1: soldier? Mm. Um, um No, you you I had an get... insight that you want to well um I think it's kind of like also indicative of how little value they like place on human lives in both of these contexts because, um, you know, Bodhi at one point talks about how he wants to be a smart ass pawn quote unquote, so he can get to the end of the board or, you know, become like the kingpin after all. But, um, the soldiers in Generation Kill are sent on kind of like reckless missions that you know needlessly put their lives in danger, you know, not unlike how Avon and Stringer order Gerard and Sapper to go after uh, uh, I can't remember who it was, but all kinds of you know extremely dangerous missions that could you know fatten their bottom line or shape the narrative that they're winning things, but. Even if they die, it's a sacrifice that anybody's willing to take in order to shape a, you know, falser narrative at large.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think just, sorry, if I could add, I mean, yes, drawing please. even some parallels to season two where Simon's, you know, just all about the death of work and in his view, David Simon, that, you know, under our current systems, people matter less and less each day. So kind of the... uh Similarities to to yeah. those kind of, like Willie said here, stuck doing missions. Uh, all so, you know those and the top brass could chase medals, or Rawls and Burrell can achieve awards from the from the mayor and promotions.
0: Yes, um, when um, in season two, the mechanization and the automation of the shipping industry makes the individual worker much less valuable yeah. um did either of you watch the Queen's Gambit yes <laughs> okay what did I um and this is a little bit of a tangent but I got really into chess for a little while um, you know three or four months after watching that show and and learned a lot about the game and then started thinking about the way chess is threaded through the wire and the pawns are, are the pawns. They're kind of the least valuable. They're the front line. But then the mid-line or mid-level pieces, which are the bishops and the knights, are still not the, the most valuable of the valuable, but I kind of see them as being similar to the soldiers like Webay or like Bodhi. Like, they're a little bit more valuable but they're the first to be in harm's way. Like they have to go out and do kind of the most risky or, or physically dangerous (laughs) in in the context of a board game Um, maneuvering um, before the, the high value, like the queen and the rook can go and kind of finish executing what you might call the mission. Right. Um, And so maybe as you kind of rise up the ranks, you get to be, um, you know, a sort of a soldier, and we see in Generation Kill the the soldiers being quite um, excited. I, like I see them being excited in a lot of ways about going forward uh, to to do this mission, but it keeps kind of falling apart or, or they never get to really complete what, what they've set out to do or what they think they're going to do. And I think there's a lot of frustration. So what do you think about kind of the futility and, and the frustration that these individuals
1: feel? Um, well, I don't know if you got a chance. I in the little Google doc, uh, I sent in a thing about David Simon talking about paths of glory and how that was very influential to his uh, construction of the wire and generation kill and how he's always kind of focused on uh the people in middle management that are tasked mm-hmm. with you know juggling all these responsibilities that they feel like kind of a you know a moral middle ground i guess you could say <laughs> um, you know we see uh as jakob had pointed out that uh D'Angelo is tasked with uh, letting Avon and Stringer know about the whereabouts of Omar's boyfriend and kind of like the moral weight has to fall on him and is very crushing to him. So I think that it kind of like reinforces the idea that, you know, to climb the chain of command or get to a higher level of hierarchy, you have to sell your soul in a lot of ways like we see that with uh you know you know maybe people in generation kill aren't as aware of like the terrible cost of climbing the power structure because we haven't seen no man carelessly uh calling in really dangerous uh, artillery strikes um yeah
0: or captain america oh, um <laughs> being sort of this buffoon character, um, like kind of like Presbo season one in some ways, like kind of just the the bet of a lot of jokes, but he's higher up the chain of command, and it's kind of like, well, they're sort of forced to, to go along with it, right? And uh, forgive me because I won't remember the character's name. One of you probably will. But the um, higher level commander who wants to enforce the no mustache rule.
1: Sixta um, Sixta John Sixta
0: Yeah and so there's kind of these what might seem like meaningless or or um low priority commands and like the one um soldier like gets in ch- shit for having his shirt untucked right yeah. and then Brad has to carry out the reprimand just to show that he's going to reprimand them right <laughs> Yeah or
2: like Garza who loses his helmet uh gets chewed out about how you know he's making every marine look bad wearing a ridiculous uh motorcycle helmet but then command can make the decision to leave a supply truck that contains their their fuel and food uh to be burned and that's just the cost of doing business similar to maybe how someone you know a corner boy or lookout will get punished for messing up the count but um you know then the cops will mess up and they'll get pensions yeah
1: or like how Stringer Bell doesn't really uh, have any consequences to face for getting totally conned by Clay Davis because there's no one above him to kind of reprimand him for such a stupid mistake.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have a hard time watching that scene. I, I honestly, in that moment, I feel bad for him. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's just because I know what's Those away games. <laughs> um, Those awakenings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the blame does kind of fall on the the pawns, the lower level um, when the, uh, when the convoy or at least um, Brad's crew misses in scare quotes, misses the turn to go over the bridge and uh, over the radio. um, Godfather or the fellow below Godfather says, Oh, they, they missed the turn back there. But really that, that wasn't the case. And it was an order um to keep going and so do you think like the the chain of command is even more um i don't know if corrupt is the right word but even more hard on the lower levels in generation kill
2: uh i i would think so i i mean I just i had something interesting from the book if i if i might share just yeah. kind of how uh, I, I wanted
0: to put yeah. the book because I, I i haven't read
2: it well i mean it's just kind of how maybe this idea of uh them being a constant feint or a decoy um kind of leads to two issues within the ranks and the quote is basically the lack of info Per, uh, provided to marines about their role in the grand scheme of things is beginning to erode morale they simply don't know that brazenly driving into ambush ambushes is part of the plan so kind of maybe drawing parallels to Kima being stuck in the middle of a really dangerous situation yeah. even though that's all part of the bigger plan to put dope on the table to please burrell and right. so forth
1: and i also think in some ways uh within the institution of like the military industrial complex that we see in generation kill a lot of the people like on the lower rung of the chain of command, when they do like make catastrophic mistakes or, you know, are corrupted or, you know, acting in a like kind of psycho way that falls through the cracks more than it does in the universe of the wire, because Presbulsky very early on in the series, he's shown to be like, very brutal you know he takes a kid's eye out so uh, yeah. even though in a completely justice society I feel like he would have been relieved of his job and faced criminal charges he still does like have the opportunity for growth because he's demoted and kind of like is forced to like come into his own whereas in Generation Kill Trombley mercilessly uh, kills these two children and, you know, he's kind of like the black sheep for a little while, but then he's like almost kind of rewarded for this uh, socio- these sociopathic tendencies and it's almost kind of an asset in the, in the uh, field of combat. I mean, in the book, Evan Wright writes about at one point how it seems like uh, Trombley is maybe like falling asleep or like not gripping his gun as tightly as he would like him to. He's like, I know... What he's capable of, and I don't endorse it at all. But in this moment, I want him to be the warrior that I know he's capable of, and that I've seen him be before. So, it's uh, interesting how different contexts uh, shape the per- people's perception of uh, what they are in the in the hierarchy of things.
0: Yeah, and the reward for having done what could be objectively uh, something negative. Right season five of the wire we see that on a much i mean less destructive scale but with templeton um making everything up in in his articles and then we see at the end he gets a pulitzer and it kind of goes back to just the um unfairness or the injustice of of the systems right
1: and um you you pointed out something uh, interesting about Captain America that's mentioned in the book, like kind of in the epilogue. That oh, he gets, yeah,
2: yeah. he uh, Well, just piggybacking a little on the Trombley stuff, uh, he eventually, right wrote, was going to go try uh, the police academy with the LAPD, which is like, oh, no, what is, <laughs> what is this? I couldn't find anything follow-up you know, that actually went through. And I don't know how... If anyone read this book, he could be clear like clear a psych screening. Uh, I always wondered the same about Prez, but this is even more severe well, and
0: uh Yeah, that's um I'm I uh, that's a good little easter egg or like going from that world to the LAPD, i that's a very like militarized police but yeah. <laughs> The one um sometimes I see these articles about problems with the wire or why it's worse than breaking bad whatever um and one of the only legitimate criticisms I've seen is that is it realistic that presbo would be working as a school teacher after he's had this um police involved shooting um with another police that was racialized and I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if that's realistic. I, I don't know enough about the systems probably, but kind of an interesting parallel there, Jakob, which yeah. you pointed cool. out.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. I, I mean, we debate that too on our podcast, yeah. if he would have actually been able to, you know, uh, join that profession, but they seem like they were struggling enough in Baltimore city to where anyone, uh, with some credentials could, uh, could, slide through, which maybe just speaks to the greater picture of our institutions being broken almost beyond repair. Uh, But yeah, the whole Captain America thing, I think he also got a promotion as well.
1: right? (laughs) Uh,
2: So after all the, uh, you know, abuse of prisoners and this and that, uh, yeah, Captain America still in line for,
1: yeah, jump and pay grade. Yeah, it kind of just like fits into David Simon and Ed Burns's entire worldview that uh you know uh encino man calling in danger close artillery strikes to get medals is just like burrell and rawls ordering these stash house raids or buy bust or street rips in order to juke yeah. the stats and present a you know nice thing for the media
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah that's that's one of the things i i wonder about generation kill because in the wire i think there's skepticism of the systems all the way up the chain of command right um and even the commissioner the police the mayor um everybody is kind of in on what the game is but i felt like in generation kill the top command godfather is presenting this narrative in a way that I can't tell if he believes it or not. Maybe it's because we don't really see as much private discussion with Godfather and the others, but um, he really kind of, Godfather, that is, sort of sells it and says, we have now accomplished a critical recon uh, position. You're the first ones to take this this uh, Hamlet. Um, I, I'm butchering the yeah. language of generation, but... Uh, how do you how do you see that as one of the differences between the shows? Like, is like is it believed at the top level of military
1: um in, in in my interpretation i definitely think it is because i feel like in the why like in the context of the wire the war on drugs has been kind of like on this endless journey for decades now that people are kind of trying to like stay they're starting to like see through the cracks and recognize its flaws. And I feel like sometimes I forget what the national like mood was like in the wake of September 11th. I mean, it really seemed like everybody is like a bipartisan effort. Like everybody was really galvanized towards, you know, getting revenge on the people who caused September 11th and fighting this war on terror. So I think it was, you know, we were still kind of being uh, p- <laughs> this uh, propagandized too, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in a I, way, like, yeah. I mean,
2: we we grew up together, as Willie alluded to early on, and we're in, you know, what Colbert would call commie California, even though he's an infinitely <laughs> hard person to read, uh, yeah. you know, Kami California, I want to buy a Russian tank. Uh you yeah. know this and that vote republican oh you're uh from a uh, red shithole state person yeah. this and that but you know we're in the bay area growing up singing proud to be an american for you yeah. know a- assemblies and you yeah. know i'd probably at that time you know one of the more liberal type of schools you could think of uh, yeah so just yeah
1: but it was still like we saw american flags everywhere like even like it's like I remember walking out of school to like protest the Iraq War at one point, and we had cars driving by yeah. and harassing us yeah. and you know cussing us out. I believe it. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's um, my sister and I. We live in Canada, yeah. and as outsiders looking in, it's very different. And we did live in the states. We lived in Arizona for about eight years. Um, oh. Both of us did. And the difference is vast. There's um, a lot of uh, ingrained patriotism that just—it's not in Canada, and I—I I don't know why. There's a lot of cultural differences, but I agree with you about post nine eleven being this sort of moment of national coming together. That to question anything would almost be an offense to the american spirit Yes, definitely and um and so maybe i maybe it doesn't matter if anyone in the generation kill universe was sort of at the brass level was internally questioning but the job was to give this um explanation and congratulations in a lot of ways for what Ever was going on, yeah, uh, because you know people people needed to see progress or be optimistic about outcomes, kind of like the war in Vietnam,
2: I suppose. Yeah, and that's a great point. And I just recall from the show where Colonel Dowdy was relieved uh, not only of his command but his uh, his sidearm and ammunition. Who you know, uh, Godfather said was a you know he was a good man, but the top command. Major or General Mattis, uh, you know, thought that he wasn't aggressive enough. So it's kind of like be a little slow, be a little late, and uh, that's enough. You know, even if Colonel Dowdy is fully embracing uh, the the mission on hand, just giving uh, second guessing one decision or you know, yeah, it can it can lead to drastic consequences. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, so. You were both very observant um, with some of what you noticed in Generation Kill. And it makes me think, I I certainly need to go back and watch it again. Um, But there were a couple sort of repeated lines and um, almost like overlapping ideas and themes that struck me. One of them being, which I just thought was a little bit fun because I love season two of The Wire. In Generation Kill, Ray says, we're going to need bolt cutters, um, (laughs) which... Just like in um, The Wire, we we see him bring the bolt cut- cutters for the Mercedes caper. Um, and then this idea of their generation kills. Uh, convoy is always trying to cross these bridges. And and uh, one of the soldiers says, we're unable to move in any direction. <laughs> it, yeah. it reminds me of that desk scene <laughs> that's a great one. from uh, season one of The Wire. But what else have you noticed? That's like kind of stands out as um, almost like Easter eggs. I don't know if that's the right term, but uh, that's kind of how I felt about some of that.
1: Um, you're talking about just like in terms of specific scenes that are like directly analogous to Generation Kill or stuff like that? Yeah,
0: Um specific scenes or specific dialogue or, I mean, I think even the characters of Ziggy and Ray yeah. are kind of like, it would almost be like if Ziggy didn't start working at the port yeah. and had in the military, I think he'd be Ray. Yeah. Like, I think that's a good
1: statement. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, I, I, I definitely like thought that like, oh man, Ziggy should have just enlisted. <laughs> like it yeah. would have been like so much better off than working for his dad, ironically. Um,
0: yeah, that is the irony of it, right? right?
1: Um, but one thing that we both kind of noticed that uh, runs rampant through both The Wire and Generation Kill is just like the basic breakdown of any level of communication um, in terms of like resources that people need. Like uh, with Jimmy in season three, discovering that there's these uh, triangulators yeah. or uh, high- level technological equipment that he could use to uh, pinpoint Stringer and then Prez goes into the basement and finds all these computers and new textbooks kind of like uh, Colbert always asking you know like when are we going to get the batteries or the lube for our Um, 19s yeah I don't even know the specifics but it's it's just like a constant thing that nobody's getting what they need to perform basic duties (laughs)
0: Similar to in season five of The Wire with um, the well, the police budget is cut right. and then the the cruisers have flat tires and their headlights are out and, and all of that. And yeah, I think that's quite similar to when Colbert's like, when are we... Get-? And sometimes they don't even seem to have enough food. Yeah. Um, but they kind of um, get uh, these sort of unnecessary packages that, I mean... It's a little bit um cynical the scene where they're like, Oh, just a bunch of letters from some school kids <laughs> but it the truth of it is like they don't have what they right.
1: need. Uh and it's it's funny the Colbert refers to the, the past year as just like another piece of bureaucratic red tape or something it's just like, oh, this is non essential. He's just offering.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah another mouth to feed and he can't even pick up a gun if we need him to at least you know i think he said something about rolling stone could even at least uh, help us out in a pinch but um i I think another fun uh, little tidbit that we we uh, came up with or something that caught our eye was uh basically opening up in episode one of the wire season one uh the idea of you know when it ain't your turn and you know giving a fuck when it ain't your turn to give one essentially and uh when bunk's picking up phones that he necessarily shouldn't and having to catch a body in the po homes and then uh aspera really not uh okay with the you know people like colbert who are di- rooting around in uh, yards and and uh, getting in touch with high explosive, uh, you right. know, bomb, unexploded bombs, saying the only thing we have to worry about here are the fucking do-gooders. So, um, <laughs> yeah. just kind of knowing your place, especially if you're stuck in, you know,
1: stuck on the ground, so. right? Because it's just going to create more work for the higher ups, and we don't want that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and speaking of do-gooders, um, Bunny Colvin, mm. um, who, from a harm reduction standpoint, Hamsterdam is is a good idea essentially, right? But um within the police or the political structure, he, he's kind of reprimanded. Right. So what what do you make of Hamsterdam from a do gooder perspective? <laughs>
1: um well, I think Jakob and I are pretty much in lockstep uh thinking about it from like a policy standpoint that uh, we do feel like the war on drugs is a complete failure and the ideas that bunny was putting forth are very noble. But uh, yeah, like you said, within the power structure of the police uh, it's antithetical to what (laughs) they're trying to achieve on a day-to-day basis. (laughs) So, I mean, uh, it's mate, like I'm trying to think of like, maybe things that are similar within generation kill where somebody is doing something that is like objectively good and moral and getting just reprimanded for it. And maybe even demoted. I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of examples like a uh, captain Patterson refusing the order to go looking for mines at nighttime. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, or one of you had pointed out, um, about the well about how music and singing are used uh, yeah. um yeah. as a kind of maintain morale I I don't know if that is punished in any way but it is I guess a, a do-gooding or for the for the benefit of uh, of morale
2: yeah yeah we we thought about that and just how I mean basically I mean in Baltimore it's more you know white cops and black cops and then out in the desert and gen kill it's more of a white and then latino population that are interacting so that, that you know but then you have people like q-tip who's a complex individual maybe grew up on rapola street with frog i don't know but uh, <laughs> um, uh yeah. you know he's always yeah. rapping and getting people you know from the boonies or in the middle of nowhere who maybe grow up grew up uh you know, racist and in, and in, into hip hop and and rapping along with him to hot in here. So
1: right, you know, kind of similar.
0: Yeah, and there's kind of like that um, code switching or or adopting a a certain manner of speaking that maybe originates with another um, ethnic or racial group. But in the wire, sometimes it's like. Um, more of a stereotyping, right? right? like one of you had noticed herc <sighs> doing this and herc, I think has some um maybe moments where he is a little bit um noticing the racial disparity like oh, now we're in the east side, so that means I'm the one who's gonna go out and undercover <laughs> on the streets because he sees a real racial divide. right
1: yeah um and in some ways that's uh kind of intuitive but I mean the two scenes that like I really took notice of in The Wire and Generation Kill like they're almost like kind of on top of each other Um, when Herc is looking at the feet of the camera and you know donning a stereotypical black urban accent to make fun of what he thinks Marlo might be saying it kind of like almost runs directly parallel to the scene in Generation Kill when couple of Marines, I can't even remember what their names were, were using a, like, kind of offensive accents to, uh, theorize about, like, what the Iraqis were saying to each other, so, um, kind of, like, hammers home this theme of, uh, you know, assumption of somebody else's motives or, you know, their way of thinking is a serious hindrance on getting any kind of valuable work done.
0: And I think that probably goes back to just um, making even worse the communication problems, which uh, the the translating marine uh, who continually says, "Oh, they're they're grateful to be liberated. They're grateful to be liberated." Um, the resistance to this other racialized group and their accents and their language and all of that. Um, if there were more acceptance or understanding or, um, maybe cross-cultural learning, there wouldn't be such a, what are they saying? What are they saying? What are they saying? Right. And and having to rely on this one translator who is not really providing any valuable communication.
2: Yeah. Mish, I think he's from Kuwait in the book, right? So Kuwaiti. So so, (laughs) he already has his own uh, perceived notions of, like you mentioned, culturally in Iraq. So. But, uh, I mean, one thing that kind of, you know, in preparing to talk with you, the idea of thresholds, and it's something that I'm not really familiar with, and uh, we were kind of talking, Willie and I getting ready about uh, there's a moment where Mish is kind of crossing over. Uh, into the imam's mosque and it's a really high profile meeting and he's the only one able to do so and like you said it's the reliance on just that one individual who can speak arabic and how he's servicing an entire you know division essentially and just the insanity of that um, and then how much the the major crimes unit relies on someone like bubbles to really infiltrate areas like the pit and the corner and kind of you know they all speak the same language but it's much different and and Bubbles is milieu, so yeah. um, I don't know what your thoughts well, are just, on that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, the um, the infiltrating for the purposes of language uh, is an interesting point, Jakob, because when I first watched The Wire, um, and definitely when I first watched Generation Kill, I was on the outside of the language. Um, There's a lot of street jargon in the wire that i didn't know and the show doesn't try to make it easy there is not a lot of expo- exposition for the purposes of understanding the language and generation kill i think is very much the same where they just use the military jargon in the way that it is used in real life yeah. and there is no explanation yeah. and i always kind of my advice to people when they're first watching the wire is just let it wash over you exactly. just let it wash over you which is kind of the way we learn language, yeah. right? You immerse yourself and you start to pick it up, but did you both uh, feel that when you first watched uh, both of these shows? I think
1: Generation Kill even more so. <laughs> it's like far more complicated uh, the milieu they're in like I don't fully understand <laughs> uh, the chain of command um, I was picking up these little acronyms here and there and like Kind of parsing out a lot of the jargon, but there's still a lot that is, you know, maybe on the third or fourth time I watch this show, I'll finally uncover like all the plot or cultural details that I'm missing out on. But is, yeah. you're not missing out on enough to have the message still driven home for you, I feel.
0: I agree. I think like it's one of those things that it means it just gets richer the more you watch it. There is a moment with the reporter in Generation Kill um, when he's in that position of not understanding um, it's coffee and it's, what do they call it, like Navajo Juliet or Nevada Juliet, Mm. something like that. And it has to be explained to him. I won't go into it, but it means coffee. And you kind of see just the expression on his face of like, oh, and that speaks to the complexity of the jargon that like there's just um little codes for everything really like the way that the um the wire universe maybe has street code for selling drugs or whatever like there's triple the number of of code language or much more than that in generation kill so yeah i agree william that it's uh even harder to understand what's going on but you just You just immerse
2: yourself in it, I guess. Yeah, and um, we kind of discussed an article. uh, You can help me out if I don't uh, remember here, Willie. But um, it was just basically about a 10-year anniversary uh, with the show Generation Kill. And it did discuss language a bit and how much the Marines or recon Marines love to just kind of uh, (laughs) overdo it a little bit. I mean, you know, they're not cars or automobiles, they're vehicles and just like this constant pattern (laughs) where they just love to, I mean, you know, not much going on out there at times or, you know, they're in really harsh environments. So uh, being creative, even if it can be really offensive is kind of, part of the game too
1: yeah and i i also think it's kind of like an interesting theme that runs prevalent in both the wire and generation kill is that they're both so versed in their particular set of jargon that they could almost use it as an advantage uh in presenting to the outside world sometimes uh, a rosier view of the things that they do like in the wire when uh bubbles is abused or like you know these suspects are beaten brutally by the cops they could you know kind of like put a spin on things like with oh you know we ascertained the individual and we are interrogating him and things escalated kind of similar in a generation kill when they're just trying to get this boy Cassiovac that uh trombley has shot And Lieutenant Ferrando has to go into this whole deal about, you know, the mission at large and what's at stake and the objectives that we're trying to achieve and the rules of engagement and this and that. And it's kind of uh, making simple moral situations way more complicated than they need to be because they have that uh, language to to their disposal.
0: Yeah. Carver kind of maybe pokes fun at that a little bit when, um, Co-ops that militarized or um, official sounding jargon when he says we are an effective deterrent to the war on drugs when we are on the street. And then Herc totally just like deflates yeah. it and says fucking motherfuckers up, <laughs> which is really what they both mean, yeah, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um. I know that we have so much that we didn't even get to. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I really, oh, I want to go back and read the book yeah. and watch the show again. But um, hopefully, we can have another conversation about Generation Kill. And and if you, on your own podcast, do uh, an episode about Generation Kill, um, I would be keen to listen to that because you both have so much knowledge on it. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you, you. Really think I should go back. <laughs> Uh, do some more learning. Um curious, what's uh coming up for you on your podcast? What are you planning to tackle next related to the wire?
1: Um well we're we're just doing an episode by episode uh type thing. So we're almost done with season 4. Um we've kind of like shifted <laughs> all over the place on like uh different things we kind of focus on and we've kind of like finally gotten into our groove with uh, talking about like the political and historical context behind that, and yeah,
2: and I mean, yeah, again, you know, we're really grateful to be here talking with you. It's it's like uh, been a journey to get to where we are, more than halfway through season four in our own project, and then having the opportunity to come talk about the uh, the universe of you know HBO and David Simon, Ed Burns, you know. And, greater context but maybe we're really excited about well not maybe maybe we'll talk about uh we own this city which is coming out uh probably in the next year you'd probably have more i think uh, yeah
1: 2022 is yeah so that's a release date
2: that's something we've had our eye on and you know maybe we'll talk about and tackle yeah
0: i'm currently making my way through the deuce yeah
2: yeah i'm kind (laughs) of doing a rewatch. willie's inspired me i only got through the first season the first time around so yeah. we're trying to balance everything yeah. because it's like hey you know did you want to record uh well i got into the deuce again so uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. let's uh, reschedule yeah. i'm busy with work <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah like after we started this project i uh decided that i was going to go and watch all of the david simon products i mean i still Homicide, I know he technically didn't create. He just wrote some episodes for. It's not available on any streaming service, so I haven't gotten to that one yet. But yeah, The Deuce mm, might be like my second favorite David Simon creation. I don't know. Hmm. Really? Yeah.
0: So that means higher than Generation Kill, right? Um. Well,
1: it's kind of hard for me since Generation Kill is only seven episodes you know just a miniseries it doesn't yeah have t- it doesn't
0: really fit it's not in the same like comparison It's apples and oranges
1: a little bit yeah but it, it like i i watched generation kill uh earlier this year for the first time um and i felt uh extraordinarily depressed by the time i got to the end of it i feel like it's a pretty hopeless narrative um and i feel like well i don't want to so is the why. Well, there's always, like, these (laughs) little, like, little, uh, little things that, like, prevail. Like, we get, uh, Bubbles' storyline where he finally gets clean and is able to come up from the basement and, uh, talk to his sister. He's, he crosses that threshold from the basement up to upstairs. uh,
0: Yes, another
1: threshold. Good catch. Carver, you know, he's, like he evolves and grows as a person and is able to climb the ranks in a not so corrupt way. (laughs) Like rare. There's there's these. Naaman makes it out of the
0: game. Um, To some degree, uh, Pooch makes it out of the game.
1: I mean, there's these like rare instances of optimism, whereas I feel like in Generation Kill, by the end it presents a pretty, bleak picture of where we are in the world yeah Yeah.
0: well when i finish the deuce um i would love to talk about it with both of you um, yeah definitely i'm only on season one so i've got a little ways to go but looking forward to that um tell everyone where they can find you um the podcast once again for everyone is the gods will not save you where can people listen and and what are your social accounts
1: um, so we're at the Gods Will Not Save You on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We have a Gmail account in case anybody wants to, you know, write in and talk to us about the wire. It's not save you at gmail.com.
0: Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you both so much. I really enjoyed talking about this with you and I encourage everyone to go check out your podcast and hopefully we'll be talking about The Wire again very
1: soon. Thank you. This is great.
2: Thank you so much, Kelly. And yeah, happy birthday to Bailey. Hopefully we (laughs) could all uh, sit down and talk sometime.
1: I hope
0: so. Thank you so much. Thank you, William. We'll see everyone next time way down in the hole.